Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast, and especially in this episode where we're going to do some questions that we've gotten over the last couple of months. It's just a great reminder that uh, we do this for you guys who listen, and we're so thankful for people who respond, who send emails, who leave ratings, who ask questions each week, Um, even people that just text and talk about maybe what an episode meant to them. How many of you guys read Haggai for the first time in a long time (laughs) after the last episode? So we really appreciate you guys. And like I said, this is why we do the podcast because we love to equip and teach and talk and discuss. And our ultimate goal is that people would be in their Bibles and thinking Christianly about the world. And so we've got a couple of great questions for this episode. And these have come in either on social media or through info at soespeak.com, or even I think a couple of these were texted in. So the first question we have is from one of our most faithful listeners, uh, shares Brandy, and she asked, and I'll I'll paraphrase some of these questions. Mm -hmm. She asked, how do you maintain accountability for the pastor of a church when the pastor no longer knows all the people? And I would even add to this, I I think this is a really good question for several reasons. First of all, because of all the public moral failure that the church has experienced over the last couple of years. And then secondly, because there are a lot of churches now in the multi-site model where not only do the people going to the church not know the pastor, they may never have met the pastor, they may not live in the same city as the pastor. Right. The staff doesn't even know the pastor. Right. So you're getting churches now that are so big. Now, there's not that many of them, Mm -hmm. but there are churches now that are so big that the pastor doesn't actually know everybody who's on staff. The staff is in and of itself a small church. Right. And that small church has gotten too big to know the pastor. So there's a lot of things interweaving in here. This is a great question. How How do you maintain accountability for senior pastors? That's a good way to, to limit that a little by talking about senior pastors. I'll jump right into my understanding of the scriptures and of the early church model, which I'll say I don't know that the early church model is necessarily binding, but I think the actions of the apostles as they set up churches are at the very minimum very wise. But I think elders of a congregation are charged with the spiritual health of the congregation, the spiritual shepherding of the congregation. And a senior pastor or lead preacher, whatever, typically in this model is accountable to the elders, uh, spiritually accountable, maybe financially and, you know, on the business side of a, of a large church. But let's just focus on the spiritual side because I sense that's what the question is about. I think elders are charged with that. Now, What if you don't have elders? I know there are models out there that don't. I personally think that's a big problem. And I'm just going to go out on a limb and tell you, I think that's really unwise. Mm -hmm. Now, what if you do have elders? Because we've had some great failures of megachurch pastors in churches that had elders. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I think there are a couple of reasons why you can still have a problem if you have an elder board. But before I jump into those two, let me kick it back to you. What's, what's your feeling about the idea of elders? And do you think there is anyone other than elders who could or should effectively hold a senior pastor accountable? Well, I think I think you've gone about it exactly the right way. You have to start with the text. You have to start with the biblical witness. But the, the interesting thing about church polity is what, what you hear is called sometimes, or church leadership is that the Bible doesn't give a very comprehensive framework for how churches should be run. Mm -hmm. In fact, about all you get is that there should be a plurality of elders, you get a plurality of deacons, you get job descriptions, kind of, for both Mm -hmm. of them, you get qualification lists that are important, but there's no passage in the Bible that says, can you have a youth pastor? Should your youth pastor be an elder? Should all pastors be elders? Should you have... Um, you know, rankings in your pastors of they are ordained by the church, they are ordained by the state, they are licensed by the state. I mean, there are a lot of different variables in here. And so in some cases, there needs to be some freedom in how churches go about organizing their system and how they organize their accountability. I would say if you start where the Bible does, one of the things, as you mentioned, is the pastor should have accountability. That's just a first step for a lot of churches. If you're in a single pastor model, 
no elders. The pastor is the lead pastor. Mm-hmm. There is nobody who is the pastor's peer in in the church or in the church leadership. That is a very dangerous situation. You're not destined to fail at that point, but it's a very dangerous situation. Now, some churches, depending on what denomination you are, will have a single pastor, but he is reporting to a board of some kind, either a presbytery or Mm -hmm. um, some kind of hierarchical model. And like we said, there's just a lot of different ways to do that. But in this part of the country especially, you have churches that are congregational who have a senior pastor, no elders, that's a precarious spot to be in because the pastor is not being held accountable. The thing about a plurality of elders, though, that can get tricky is do you make your staff pastors elders or not? A lot of churches will do all lay elders. That means none of them work at the church except the senior pastor. And he right. is an elder. Or sometimes he's not an elder, but he is on the elder board or something mm-hmm. as a liaison from the church. And in those cases, um, you usually have pretty good accountability in terms of finances. You have pretty good accountability in terms of long-term decision-making. But sometimes lay elders, there's two problems with lay elders. Sometimes lay elders have a very hard time holding the pastor spiritually accountable because he is their pastor. Right. And he appoints them typically. So you have people who have an interesting conflict between the spiritual side of things and the business side of things. Mm -hmm. Uh, In a lot of churches, the pastor has mentored a lot of the elders. In a lot of church plants, you see the pastor appoints all the elders, and they've all been discipled by him, and they're all people who really want to be like him. It's very hard for those people to hold the pastor accountable as well. Although I will say, in some of the better, more successful church discipline cases in the last few years— it's the elders who have fired lead pastors. Right. And you hate to see that happen, but in some ways that's a sign that things are going well. Right. But you have an elder board that's independent enough to fire the pastor when when it needs to happen. Right. So the elder plurality of elders is the starting place, and it feeds into all these other issues. But that, that would be the place that I think you need to start is if you have – Lay elders, you need to make sure that they're able to hold the pastor accountable spiritually as well as financially. Now, if I mentioned this earlier. If you don't have lay elders, if you have staff elders, that creates a completely different set of problems, which I think is probably a little bit harder to overcome. If all of your elders report to your senior pastor, you don't have accountability. Right. So if, if the executive team maybe of the church, for example, all reports to the senior pastor and that functions as your elder team. Right. They may be a great executive team because they all know the ins and outs of what they're trying to do. They're, mm-hmm. they're on the ground uh, and in the trenches, but it's going to be very hard for them to collectively hold their boss accountable spiritually, financially, in any way. Well, before we leave the idea of not having elders, I want to clarify one thing. You made a good point. If you don't have elders and you have a lead pastor that is essentially unaccountable, and I mean, sometimes we rationalize it, but essentially, I agree with you, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have problems. I'm not trying to malign the senior pastor. In fact, I would say in most cases, it works fine. I just think it's unwise for mm-hmm. any of us to, to lack accountability. But if you do have elders, regardless of their makeup, I want to make a couple of observations as I've watched things that have happened. Uh, you know, you wrote in the weekly speak today about Jerry Falwell. I know he's not a megachurch pastor, but he's leader of a Christian organization with a board. Part of the problem is he doesn't see himself as well, a Christian right. leader. Right. Or take a Bill Hybels, <laughs> who did have an elder board, and that, that whole yeah. situation, if you're familiar with it. I think there are two things that elders need to be really careful about. Number one is having a greater loyalty to your particular congregation, your church, than you do to the kingdom. In other words, being afraid of disciplining or calling aside a pastor because you're afraid it might cause a ruckus or might make the church look bad, which I trace back to the idea of being more interested in the reputation of that congregation than you are in the kingdom. That's just an opinion that I have. Yeah, well, I think that that dovetails nicely into the description of what a pastor and what elders are supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. The, The elders and the pastor are not necessarily equipped or are not necessarily charged 
to make their church the best version of itself that it can be. Right. Although that's the operating mission statement of a lot of churches. Right. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that as long as it goes along with the real mission, which is to fulfill the Great Commission, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, right. to protect the flock. So when you start to read about the qualifications for elders and deacons, one of the things that they're supposed to do fundamentally is take care of the people, whether it's by leading, feeding, protecting, serving, serving. Right. all of those things are under the umbrella of they are there to serve the people, not their reputation, not their attendance numbers, not their bottom line. They are there for the spiritual health of the people. And so you're, you put it uh, in terms of the church globally versus the specific church. Right. And you can also look at that as the specific church versus the individual believers who are in the church that mm-hmm. they are there to serve. So that those priorities have to stay in the right order. Which dovetails into my second thing that I think can go wrong. And I'm, both of these I understand. I'm not trying to be holier than thou. I mean, I understand firsthand how easy these things are to do. The second is to basically things are going so well and so much, quote, kingdom work is being done, so much spiritual good is being done that we basically let some of the other things go for the sake of the greater good. This ultimately boils down to a very unpopular statement, but this is what it really amounts to is the ends justify at least overlooking some of the means that we're uncomfortable with. Mm-hmm. And I just have to say categorically, I, I in the New Testament, I don't find anywhere, anyhow, that the ends ever justify the means. But I understand that you can say to yourself, and when I read a lot of the uh, people at Willow who were uh, spiritually abused or you know were victims, if you will, that's maybe a strong word, but victims of this, their statement was, I didn't say anything because... I knew so much good was being done here. And so I think that's really something we're susceptible to, but I don't think it's ever acceptable to say, we're not really doing this the right way, but because so much good is being done. Mm -hmm. If you think about it, there's an incredible arrogance in that, is that God can't do this without us, and so we're going to have to put up with some ungodly behavior for it to happen. Right. I think that's natural. I think that happened in... In several of the cases that we see. Yeah. You should never overlook immaturity or ungodliness for the sake of gifts, no matter how gifted your pastor might be. Um, Two two other points I want to make. First of all, most pastors run into problems because they don't have the accountability that every believer should have in their life. Great point. There's a temptation in ministry to start to exempt yourself from normal, everyday Christian disciplines. So... It's easy as a pastor, and I would imagine very easy as a lead pastor or a senior pastor, to be in a situation where you really can't be accountable because you don't have anybody you know that's not part of your church. Mm-hmm. So there's the there's the difficulty of oversharing, and there are some things that you just need to talk about with people that are on staff or people that know what you're going through. Um, it's the same. It, it, it's the same in that sense as any other job. There are things about your job you really can't talk about with other people who don't right. work there or mm-hmm. who don't do that same job. However, the pastor is a Christian before they're a pastor, right? And so, if they don't have the kind of relational accountability, whether that's an accountability group or whether that's a group of other pastors or whether that's a group of friends that have known you for longer than you've been a pastor, maybe that can hold you accountable. And, and part of this is the best accountability doesn't come from a group of people who only know what you tell them about yourself. Right. The best accountability comes from a group of people who know you and see you in everyday life and can point out things when they're not going well or when they see areas of sin or blind spots or something like that. That's the best kind of accountability. And that's very hard to get when you're in a lead pastor role, but it's essential. Yeah, and, and one thing I would say is... Uh, Try to try not to make your spouse the person that has to do that. Now, I understand your spouse knows you better than anyone, and I think we are, as uh, husbands and wives, there to help make each other holy. But it would be nice if you developed intimacy to a, a level with another man or female, with another woman, who uh, to take a little bit of that burden off your spouse. 
Yeah, you, you need several opportunities for this. Mm-hmm. But that, that goes back to this is what the Christian life should look like for every Christian, not just people in ministry and not just not people in ministry. The last thing I want to add is it's easy to come down hard on pastors who don't have accountability. I think that's probably a bigger problem than the opposite. I mm-hmm. think there are a lot of pastors who don't have adequate accountability. However, I do think there's something that needs to be said for accountability for pastors, like protection for pastors right. against people trying to take advantage of their either credibility or their fame or something like right. that. The Bible is also pretty clear that you should not admit a charge against an elder except on the witness of two to three witnesses. Mm-hmm. So what that protects a pastor from, now pastors should never put themselves in this position anyway, but that protects a pastor from a one-off accusation becoming a career ender. Right. And that's the same with all of your elders, whether it's your lead pastor or not. One person in the congregation doesn't get to have guilt by accusation against an elder. So the problem, though, is with all the cases of abuse that we're seeing in the church that are coming out, in a lot of those cases, it really just was the pastor and that person. Right. Now, that person should tell someone, and that person should be a second witness. Um, And I'm not pretending like that's an easy thing to do. A lot of what you hear is people were scared for years to say anything to anyone because of what happened to them. Mm -hmm. So these are very real problems, but the accountability goes both ways. Elders should be holding pastors accountable, but you should also think we need multiple witnesses here. We need multiple accounts here. We can't just buy into the cultural swell of guilt by accusation. Once one person raises one charge against an elder, we totally believe it and we ax that person. I, I think there's some accountability against mm-hmm. that as well. Well, and the, the cultural idea that uh, an accusation or a problem means you're, you're finished. I mean, I think that you know, Christian discipline needs to be redemptive in focus, not punitive in focus. There are times when stepping away needs to happen or removing someone from their position, but we fundamentally come from a position of redemption. My final point would be, and thanks to Brandy for this question, that's a really good question, but I want to bring it down to every believer like you did and ask this question, uh, who in your life could tell you something that you did not want to hear spiritually? I'm not talking about criticizing you for other things, but saying, listen, I I see this happening in your life and I I really worry this is not good for you. I don't think you're on a good track. Who in your life can say that to you? And then the bigger question sometimes is, which one of your friends are you willing to lose their friendship to say that to? Do you care enough about them to say? That's not an easy thing, but I think we're, we're each called to that. I agree. Okay, question number two uh, is from Joe from John chapter 8. And this is, it's really John chapter 7, 53 through 8, but we, we think about it as John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery. Is this passage in the Bible? Should this passage be in our Bibles or should it not? You'll notice in, uh, around this passage, a lot of times if you're reading in ESV especially, you'll have double brackets around right. this passage set off from the rest of the text. And then you go down and they give a very vague, sometimes unhelpful footnote. This passage does not appear in our best manuscripts. Mm-hmm. But if it were up to me and I was on a translation committee, I if that's what I was going to say, I wouldn't have it in the Bible. So, But they give no justification for it. This is not in our earliest manuscripts. Well, then why is it sitting here in the middle of my Bible? <laughs> so what do you think? Should that passage be in the Bible or not? Yeah, three, three questions around that. First, did John likely write those words? No. I think the textual evidence for me is pretty conclusive that John did not write those words. Second question, uh, did that event actually happen? The woman caught in adultery. Now we're moving on from did John write that down in the Gospel of John? I say no. But did that event actually happen? Now I'm obviously in the realm of opinion. I believe that it did Uh, for a variety of reasons, and I won't go into all of it here, but I'll simply say this. I believe it's part of the oral tradition of events that happened in Jesus' life, and I believe this is one that actually happened. And it was written down later, and it was appended to the Gospel of John. So, finally getting to the third issue, should it be in our Bibles? Uh, 
I think so, but I would set it off in some way. So I am actually in favor of putting it somewhere in there and setting it off, but for a little different reason. The translators will say they put it in there because it's such an important part of the Christian tradition, meaning Christians for 2,000 years have, have thought a lot about this passage. I would simply say, I actually believe it happened. I mm-hmm. just don't think John wrote it down and put it in his gospel there. What do you think? Well, I, that, that's, I, I probably am going to come down a little differently on this. So one thing I think is important to understand is how we got the text that we have. So we don't have the autograph copies of all the books of the New Testament. The original writing. In fact, we don't have an early copy of all the writings put together in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. So, and then this is a fascinating topic, which I think if, if, if somebody has more questions, send us an email or something, we can send you some resources on right. looking this up. This is called textual criticism. So how, and this is, this is true with every old document. This is... Right. Not anything unique with the Bible. In fact, the manuscript evidence for the Bible is uniquely and unparalleled. It is so good in the history of manuscripts. So just to take an example, uh, nobody doubts the historicity of of where we got Beowulf, for example. You read it in school. You just take it like, well, of course, they probably got tons of copies of this somewhere. There is one copy, and part of it is burned. We don't even know what happens in parts of the story. Uh, but it's a classic of Western civilization. Same mm-hmm. thing with Caesar's Gallic Wars. There's only a few copies, but nobody has put it through the scrutiny that the Bible has been through on right. what text is authentic and is it inspired. And obviously the Bible is a different book, but mm-hmm. there are hundreds and hundreds of copies, early copies of the Bible. And so what scholars do is they are, are collectively working towards a received text, or sometimes you hear it called the Textus Recepticus. And that means the best version of the text that we have constructed from the available manuscripts that we have. And you you can go into all this stuff about how there are families of manuscripts that come from certain traditions. So that means one manuscript copied from another, copied from another, copied from another. And then that manuscript may be 10 generations back in the copies was copied into another one, and those become kind of cousin manuscripts that go down through the right. traditions, and they've been tr- they've been transcribed in certain groups of people by certain scribal traditions, and so you can do all of this to get back to what you think the earliest or the most mm-hmm. original readings are in the text. The other complicating factor is the archaeological evidence for the text that we have is really weighted toward the present. So you had early manuscripts that people like St. Jerome, for example, was using in the 4th century to compile the Vulgate, which for a long time was the received text. Mm -hmm. But in light of recent scholarship, we have a ton more manuscripts now, even earlier manuscripts, Uh than he used to put together the Vulgate then. Same thing is is true with the King James. When the translators are working on the King James... They're putting together all the manuscripts they have to come up with a text, and they translate the text into the King James. Well, they did a phenomenal job for what they had then, but we have so many more manuscripts now, mm-hmm. and we know more about the manuscripts that we do have now, that we have a better text to translate from now. The interesting thing about this text is it was early in its addition to manuscripts. So, for example, you see you see evidence that this passage was in John by the 3rd century. Right. Certainly by the time of St. Jerome. You mm-hmm. see people quoting it, at least, in the early 3rd century. So it's very old, and right. it was received in the church within 300, 250 years of Christ's death. <laughs> However, now we can see that this text is not original. And one of the, a couple of the reasons for that. Number one, it shows up in different places. Right. So sometimes you see it in this place, which is in the end of chapter 7. Sometimes you see it uh, earlier in chapter 7. There's one manuscript family in, that in has Luke. it in Luke. Yeah. Um, you have one copy, I think, where it's appended at the end. Mm-hmm. And then you have the best manuscripts that we have that don't have it at all. Mm-hmm. So the earliest and best manuscripts, like your ESV says, don't have it in there. 
it doesn't fit the structure of John. So if you're if you were going to go through and make an outline of the book of John, it has a very pronounced right. outline in two pieces. It does not fit. It that's not where you would put that story if it was in the book of John. In fact, if you take it out and you read that passage, you realize oh, we just stopped in the middle of a story right? Uh, between the Pharisees and Jesus. Because afterwards, in, in chapter 8, Jesus just, without anything, uh, introducing it says, I'm the light of the world. So you'll realize that it's in, it's, it's in the wrong spot. It shouldn't be there. Now, <clears throat> so we, at this point, you're basically agreeing. We agree that uh, it's extremely unlikely that John wrote this pericope, this passage, and it uh, almost certainly wasn't an original part of the Gospel of John. Right. I think we both agree it is it is not original to John, and uh, but it was early, and yes. it was accepted f- relatively early. Now, I, I, I want to add Bruce Metzger. If you want to mm-hmm. talk about um, the authority on this topic, it would be Bruce Metzger's text of the New Testament. He says, the evidence is overwhelming that this is not Johannine. This is not written by John. Right. My, my thought, though, would be, okay, if that's the case, to go back to our doctrine of inspiration, mm-hmm. things that are inspired are not inspired because they are true. They are inspired because they are in the canon. Right. So, for example, we could come up with several earlier, more widely accepted pieces of literature. The Didache, for example. Right. Probably received in the church before this story makes its way into John. Or First yeah, Clement, for example. Right. Early, clearly early written, second century. Clearly early written before this. Yeah. And widely accepted in the church. In fact, you see St. Augustine, who has a little bit different version of inspiration than we would have, Mm -hmm. referring to books like that as if they're basically inspired. Mm -hmm. We don't believe that, but, you know, that that was a view in the early church. Right. So my thought is, I don't know if I would make a judgment on whether or not I think this story is true. I think it would be very hard to know if it were true or not. It certainly seems to fit the character of Jesus, which I think is the point that you're making. It's truthful in that sense. But my argument would be, but so is mere Christianity. And for that matter, so is, you know, first Clement. And so is... Yeah. The Didache, but I don't want to put any of those in the Bible. Well, I don't either, but you're, you're really, we're going at a little bit different directions here. I agree with you about the Didache. I think it's it's a really great insight into the very early church and how they did it. I think uh, Clement is great. I mean, it's true. What Clement writes is true. I mean, he quotes Paul, he quotes, you know, a lot of these authors. It's very true, but I don't have any issue with it being uh, inspired the reason that I like this is number one, it's a story. It's not like it's not didactic. It's not teaching like the longer ending of Mark, which I reject. Uh, mm-hmm. Mark sixteen nine through sixteen. This is a story about something that purports to have actually happened in Jesus' life. That's yeah. a little different than a later writing. I'm arguing this probably actually happened. Yeah, well, let me play devil's advocate here for uh-huh. a second. There are some early gospels that are deuterocanonical. They're not. They're pseudonymous. They're you know, Gospel of Thomas or Gospel of Mary Magdalene or whatever. Yet, or uh, Gospel of Barnabas or Shepherd of Hermas. Right. Pretty early attestation. Relatively. There is some evidence that some of those books at, at some points were not considered maybe the same as the other Gospels. Don't believe all the stuff you see on the History Channel. Right. But at least purport to have early testimony about the life of Christ. Right. Again, I'm not, I don't agree with this. I'm just, just, just for the sake of argument. Stories about Jesus when he's a kid. Turns yeah. clay animals into... Well, the into infancy gospel of Jesus, Real animals. Yeah. They right. fly away. All made up. Yeah. So... Why dismiss those and accept this story about yeah, Jesus? Yeah, we may be getting in too deep into this, but here's the short answer to that. Uh, those are much later. And secondly, those 
rarely are in the character of Jesus. They typically have a Gnostic flavor to them. This is vintage Jesus in terms of theme, turning the power structures of the world upside down. This is vintage Jesus in holding the line between compassion and sin. So for a variety of reasons, I think this story is different. However, if you want to go to the next point, should it be included in the New Testament? And if you say no, that won't cause me heartburn, but I'll still write it in the back leaf of mine. Well, I'm not saying I disagree <laughs> with you on, on the truthfulness of it, that, that it does reflect the character of Jesus. I think from I think I'm coming from an inspiration standpoint. Right. I don't think it's inspired because here, here's the classic question. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever asked you this question before, but it's a, it's a, this is a great little game to play. Imagine we find the, God, the, the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Laodicea. Right. It's a pristine copy. It's, it's notarized. It is Paul. It is 100%. We know it's him. It's handwritten, big pen. Yes. I mean, it's Paul. Yeah. Imagine we find that in a monastery somewhere. And it comes out, do you want to add that to the New Testament as it stands? No. You know what I would do with that and, and several other things is I would do what we've done with the Old Testament text. And we've taken uh, the Apocrypha, you know, the extra books that we don't believe are inspired but are very edifying and educational. I would... This is just an opinion. Other people may differ. But I believe that we've been equipped with what God wants in there, has been found in God's time. I would read it. And to the extent it was consistent, I would use it. But I would consider it more like the Apocrypha. In other words, sort of a, a chapter at the end of the Bible saying, here are some other early good documents. Mm-hmm. Does that? How, how would you answer that? I, I agree, but that's yeah. why I wouldn't put this passage from John in the text of the Bible, because that letter is earlier than this passage. And it is attested to in the uh, New Testament already. So right. read the read the letter I sent to Laodicea. So that, that's commanded. Right. That's inspired. Oh, I agree. Now, and I think that was localized to them. I don't think all people everywhere are commanded, but I right. think we would say, okay, if we found a letter from Paul, it would be Wow, awesome. But I think the point is, just because it was written by Paul doesn't mean it's inspired. Not right. everything that Paul wrote was inspired. And I have a little That's hunch a good point. That that something that Paul included in there, the Holy Spirit didn't like, or we would well, have that letter. So, Well, and here's my final thought. When you find that letter, I'll be happy to move this story out so with it into the, an appendix. When we put in. the appendix in of the gospel to, or the, the letter to Laodicea, we'll put we'll this put story. this in with it. My thought is there's nothing wrong with this story. I don't. I'm not one of the people. There are some hardliners who are like you shouldn't preach it, you shouldn't mention it. It's the passage that should not be named. I don't think that at all. I think it's a great story about Jesus. I think it's truthful whether it happened or not. Right. I think it probably should all be in a footnote, just mm-hmm. like th- think this happens across and your New do. Testament. You just yeah. don't right. realize that's it. right. Uh, because they're not, not as prominent. Often, but yes. But you do see some verses like this, and they're typically in a footnote. This one's just a long one, so yeah, it's kind of harder long. to put in a footnote. I might put it at the end of John right. as an end note is right. what I might do. And, and that's good. But you know, you raise a good point here, and this is something people maybe just haven't thought about, is not everything that all these apostles wrote were inspired. And I, I'm just going to put a little different twist on that, meaning that God intended for us to be reading 2,000 years from now because they wrote a lot of stuff. But I think there were certain things that God, and if you look at the history of the Bible, you'd have to say, oh my goodness, that's providential. I mean, that could, those things could never have come down to us without God. I don't think everything they wrote was intended. So I think that's a good point you're making about inspiration. So we fundamentally agree on the textuality of this, but it's interesting to explore the different options. I noticed, though, you've redacted it out of your copy of your Bible. Yeah. You've you've highlighted it with a black... I've done a Thomas Jefferson and cut it out of... (laughs) No, that's what I say. I I probably would put it at the end if it were up to me. But I don't... Good point. I'm I'm not going on a crusade against it. Question number three is from Dean. This was a really thoughtful question, and it was a longer question, so I'm going to paraphrase it. Uh, His question is essentially, what... To what extent should Christians engage civically, both in making laws, in voting for candidates, in advocating for Christian rules or laws, you would say, or city ordinances? And the point that he made, he added Mm -hmm. a lot of good nuance to this. 
The point that he made was Christians do not believe that the law changes you. Right. Both in a biblical sense and in a legal civic kind of sense. So we don't believe that just because there is a law, it makes you a law keeper. Right. So one of his points was, if that's the case, should Christians try to enact Christian laws? Christian laws in quotes being, we can disagree a little bit, but if there were such a thing as a Christian moral code, should we enact that? The second part of the question that I think is really helpful is, this is not a question of of absence. He's not saying, can we just withdraw? His question really comes down to, and if we don't do the civic part of this, mm-hmm. is that because our greatest tool is evangelism? Right. So should the church just rely on the tool of evangelism and conversion and discipleship, or should we have some kind of civic engagement? So there's a lot wrapped up in this question. It's a really good question for right now. Yes. Um, what's your take on this? Yeah, I, I love it. I'm just going to frame it simply as, should we be focused on making laws or should we be focused on evangelism changing hearts? And I'm going to give you a, an, an illustration that is the shortest way I can think of to tell you how I understand the scriptures on this. So several years ago, I guess it's probably been five or six years ago now, I had a ruptured disc in my lower back. And you probably remember this because we were on vacation. Worst timing yeah, possible. not have been worse timing. No. And so I was in uh, extreme pain, you know, a lot of pressure on the nerve. I mean, just constant pain. And so I want to talk about that injury because it's really easy to, to make this point. There is a difference between symptomatic relief and a cure. So, for example, uh, the first thing that, that they did for me was they gave me steroids, And what the steroids did was it stopped the pain temporarily, and that was a godsend. I mean, it was 24-7 pain. Anybody that's felt that, it it was grueling. So that steroid basically gave me a week or so of not having pain. Now, it didn't fix my problem. I still had pressure on these nerves, but that steroid gave me relief from those symptoms. Now, it turns out that there was a cure for this. Now, obviously, in the medical world, there's not always a cure, but there was for this, and it was surgery. I had a great surgeon, did surgery, was able to repair that disc, and uh, so then, without steroids, whatever, I have no pain at all today. So, symptomatic relief and a cure, and here's how I tend to think about this. Christians engaged, because we can in America. This wouldn't be true of Christians in North Korea, but because we can... We try to enact laws, and we try to uh, run candidates, and we try to influence the public square to relieve the symptoms of an oppressive and evil culture, where there is oppression and evil. I'm not saying all our culture is evil, but where people are being taken advantage of, we would want to put symptomatic relief and say, maybe we can have a law that says, you know, you're not really allowed to charge that much interest. You're not really allowed to treat people that way. You're, you're not really allowed to work children 16 hours a day. I think of that as symptomatic relief, and there is some value in it, and I think we should pursue it. But we should, uh, as Dean points out, never confuse ourselves that that's a cure. Mm-hmm. Evangelism, the changing of hearts of women and men one at a time, is the cure. Right. So I think we engage in both, but never think symptomatic relief is the cure. Does that help? Yeah, I I think that's a great example because to an extent we are concerned with both. It's just a matter of getting the right tools and the right outcomes and the right priorities all lined up. So I like to think of this in terms of the agency that the Bible gives to different groups. Mm -hmm. So in the Bible, you only have a few groups that are identified for Mm -hmm. driving change. The individual, which is the work of the Holy Spirit, the individual conscience, the individual believer. You have the family, who is an agent of change. You have the church, who is an agent of change. And then you have the state. And they all have a little bit different role to play. So Mm -hmm. the church, for example, the mission of the church is to fulfill the Great Commission. Right. And in that case, the number one thing and the predominant thing that we should be doing is sharing the gospel, which I think should be done on the individual level, can be done in sermons, obviously, too. Mm -hmm. But that's the mission of every believer. 
And then the church exists to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Right. So we gather, we worship, we're formed by being together in community. The word is preached. We take communion together and we care for one another. That has an effect essentially downward to the individual level. Right. And then individuals go and have a effect on the city, the state, the nation that they live in. Right. So I would almost say that churches should do no civic engagement. I don't think churches as entities should be very involved in civic things. Now, if they want to partner with people, awesome. If they want to, um, you know, if they want to release information about things that are happening, that's great. But, you know, in America, nonprofits are not supposed to endorse candidates. So nonprofits, because they are owned by the people, because they're subsidized by the people, are not supposed to endorse political candidates. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a little bit of a farce because agencies like Planned Parenthood, for example, are nonprofits. Right. And they receive government money and they endorse candidates. Right. And I think they should be defunded. Mm-hmm. And so that in and of itself is a civic statement. Right. But I don't think that churches necessarily should be the ones that are going about doing that. I think individual Christians right. and other civic organizations should be the ones doing that. So, for example, that's one of the things that we're doing. But we are a parachurch. We are not a church. So we are para, that means beside the church. We are coming alongside the church in doing things that I think the church has on their periphery. Right. So if a political statement needs to be made, if someone needs to be endorsed, if guidance needs to be given to Christians on how to specifically approach civic issues, I think that's better to be done by other organizations, mm-hmm. other Christian organizations. I mm-hmm. think you can and should be a Christian political organization. Right. The reason I think that is because every one of these organizations is also concerned with the common good. So it's it's more important that we think about the spiritual and eternal reality of people, but it's also important that we think about the public good. So right. we we're not of the opinion that as long as you get saved, it doesn't matter how miserable your life is. And if you're not saved, it doesn't matter how great your life right, is. Right. We think if you're saved or not saved, we still advocate for the common good. Right. So if you read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, you realize that from the beginning, faith and the state have not always been separated. Mm-hmm. The laws of Israel were public laws. This didn't. Th- these laws didn't just apply to people who were faithful spiritually. Right. This is how their nation was run. And in a lot of cases, you see God commanding them to go and seek justice and to stand up for the oppressed and to watch out for the people who uh, have been have been disenfranchised in other nations. So the common good extends into the state. Whether or not this, we're talking about the theocracy that was right. ancient Israel. You see less of this in the New Testament. I think part of that is just because of necessity. People mm-hmm. were not voting. They didn't have very many civic rights. Well, they, they lived in kind of the equivalent of North Korea in yeah. the sense that they had very few rights. Right. Yeah. So it's not like Paul could say, hey, you know, church in Colossae, get out the vote. Yeah. Because they didn't vote. Right. So... But there is a strain of living, especially in First and Second Thessalonians, you see this, living in your city in such a way that you are advocating for the common good, mm-hmm. that you are doing the right thing for people, whether or not those people are believers, and whether or not it has anything to do with their spiritual health. Now, this is a really debatable point, and we don't have time to go into it here, but what is considered a common good that Christians believe? So, for example, should we make it a law that everybody has to go to church? No. Should we make it a law that you cannot kill anyone? Yeah, that's a pretty good law. Mm -hmm. And it comes from the fact that we believe that all people are created by God and given dignity. And God commands us not to kill each other. Mm -hmm. So whether or not you believe that or not, we think you should follow that law. So this is a tough thing. What part of Christian morality should be legislated and what parts should not be? What falls under the common good in Scripture? And what is only Christians are expected to do this? Because right. we, we got to expect pagan people to act like pagans. Right. So to bring this back to the question, yes to both. Mm-hmm. But in the right order, by the right people, by the right groups, with, with, with the right importance placed on the role of the church 
versus the role of individuals. Um, I want to add one more thing here on the law. So this is a very astute point in the question that we don't believe that laws change people. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Right. However, they didn't believe that the law changed people in the Old Testament either, and God still gave the law. Mm -hmm. So there has to be some purpose for the law, you know, because it is divinely given. And Luther has three uses of the law. I'm not a Lutheran when it comes to how the church and the state work together, but I think Luther's three uses of the law brilliant. Mm-hmm. First use of the law, and he's talking about the Old Testament law, but I think there's a there's a really nice equivalent here with the civic law. Restrain evil. Mm-hmm. So the fact that you make things legal and illegal, and this has actually gone way out of fashion in America today. The fact that things are illegal means that less people will do them. That's one of the reasons you make things illegal. Consistent with Romans 13, the purpose of government, punish evildoers. Exactly. Right. They are given the sword to punish evildoers. Ideally, they would do that in, in concert with God's law. To, to speak what was evil. Yeah. Uh, so restraining evil is part of the legislature's job. They should make bad things illegal. Mm-hmm. Number two is a mirror so that we can understand our sin. So this, this applies a little bit more to the law right. in the Old Testament, obviously, than to the civic law. But but still, for people that are not believers, being convicted of what they're doing wrong could lead them to understand their sin because of breaking the law. That's great. And number three is a plan for Christian living. So one of the things that Luther saw in a big portion of the laws, we're not talking about the sacrificial laws necessarily, right. but is that if you want to know how to live a Christian life, this is a pretty good plan for how to do it. Look at the Ten Commandments. Look at the way that you know, the, the righteous people in the Old Testament follow the law. And for us, too, the plan for being a good citizen is typically found in the law, following the laws. The laws of the land are typically good. Now, there are exceptions, and I think we should work to change that. But you don't have to be a Christian, and you don't have to believe in uh, the divine sanction of things like human dignity, for example, to come up with these same tenets about the law. Right. The ancient Greeks did this. The Romans did this. There, there, there are philosophical systems which can help you to establish a civic common good. And, and as Christians, we shouldn't completely rebel against that. Right. We, we actually do believe that that's a good thing. Right. Yeah, I'd, I'd summarize it and say this is a great question. could talk about it a long time, but I like the idea of there aren't any Christians in the world who can avoid evangelism. There are Christians in the world that can avoid civic engagement. Uh, in other words, you got to keep the main thing the main thing, and that is we have a great commission to preach the gospel. We have a duty to our fellow man where we can to be a good neighbor, and that's not, not all Christians can engage in that, but all Christians can engage in evangelism. Okay, last question from Chris. This is a question we get a lot. And uh, it's, it's a question I hope you have a good answer for, because I always wonder when I get asked this question what to say. What is the best book, if you want to start learning about theology, that you would start with? I do have a, an answer, but I'm surprised that you don't. Actually, maybe because you're too widely read. But uh, I like starting with systematic Theology, And by that I mean a theology that takes the various major ideas of Scripture and looks at them in a systematic way, like who is God? Who was Jesus? What does it mean to be saved? It's called a systematic approach. Uh, I'll tell you, the number one for me is Christian Beliefs, 20 Basics by Grudem. Um, now, we're talking really introductory here, and this is where I would start. Number one. Now, at this point, I don't think it matters... I think if you're not Catholic, you shouldn't read Catholic theology. That's just my opinion. But whether you read shots Calvinist, fired. Arminian, huh? I said shots fired. Well, I just wouldn't read Catholic theology if you're not Catholic to start with. But whether it's Calvinist, Arminian, Wesleyan, doesn't matter at this point. They're 99.7% identical on systematic theology. So I like Grudem's. Uh, it's very small, 20 basics every Christian should know. Second, here's another choice, Everyone's a Theologian by R.C. Sproul. Very engaging, again, very short, doesn't get into it, explains any terminology that it uses. 
And then for those of you that really do want to read something on the Arminian Wesleyan side, about Wesley and Arminians, there's there's a dearth of systematic theological approaches there. But uh, Odin, Tom Odin, wrote a book called Classic Christianity, and it's kind of systematic. But I would say uh, Christian Beliefs by Grudem and Everyone's a Theologian by Sproul. Pick up one of those. What do you think? Yeah, I, I would agree with those. I think those are really good resources. The reason I kind of resist this question is because everybody has their pet book on this, mm-hmm. and most of them are good. And there's you know 50 of these that come out a year, and a lot of them are not very good. Right. Uh, that's my unpopular publishing opinion. Is there, there's a ton of kind of intro-ish books that don't stand the test of time, but there are very few that have risen to the top where it's like, man, that of course, if you want an intro to theology book, that's the one. Mm-hmm. But if you ask a pastor, they'll have one, right? Because everybody's had one that's had an in, an impact on them, right? And for that matter, that's why I don't love to answer the question. Mm-hmm. Ask somebody that you're going to read this with and mm-hmm. see what they say. Because the conversation will probably be better than the book yeah. um, in terms of just understanding things. But yeah, Grudem, I think, is a great start. I think Grudem's little book. Yeah, of that's what I'm 20 I'm questions. Talking the small one. Yeah. He's got a medium sized book called Christian Doctrine. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the big blue brick by Grudem, Systematic Theology. They're all pretty readable. Grudem's a very reliable, very uh, biblical guy to, to read his theology. I tend to gravitate more towards the topic. So what topic do you want to know about theologically? And then let's find an introductory book there. Because otherwise you're ending up with a thousand-page book that skims the surface. Or you get maybe a 200-page book that gives you the full flavor of a topic of systematic theology. So after you read Sproul or somebody like that, I would encourage you find one on what you want to know. Do you want to know about Christology? let's talk about a book for that or right. the Holy Spirit. Let's talk about a book for that. And one of the series that I think is really good is, is called new studies and dogmatics, which they didn't do anybody any favors with that title. Uh, because if you're not a seminary student, you're not buying that book, but right. it's edited by uh, Mike Allen and Scott Swain. And there are volumes for all the theology proper disciplines. Right. Sanctification is in there. Theology the proper. systematic categories, to put it. Yeah. Uh, justification is in there. Holy Spirit. I mean, they, and they're all really good. They're very readable. They are maybe a couple hundred pages. We'll introduce you to all the main points and connect them to Scripture. The other thing about theology is systematic theology is a great way to go. I think having an eye towards biblical theology is right. also another thing. So the difference there, and people argue about this, is whether or not you're developing a system. So like, what is everything the Bible says about this topic? Right. So what's the, everything the Bible says about God's quality of foreknowledge, for example? Yeah. That's something you would read in a systematic theology. In a biblical theology, they're a little bit more concerned with tracing a theme mm-hmm. as the Bible goes. So from the beginning of creation, we see God speaking. Maybe we would then have a section on all the ways that we see God speaking through the Bible. Right. Um, in order, kind of in the way that they unfold in Scripture. Most of my reading is biblical theology, but uh, I want to say I would start with systematic theology. And you don't have to necessarily get the big 20-pound volume and read through it, but start with the systematic, one of the short ones. If you then want to move on to the biblical themes, biblical theology, that's where I read most now. I have two suggestions for you. Uh, but this is after you've done a little systematic. The King in His Beauty by Tom Schreiner mm-hmm. at Southern Seminary is a very good biblical theology, tracing the themes. And I'll tell you another one. Uh, I think Beale is, is he an Anglican? He's I, at uh, Wheaton. As always at Wheaton? Wow. Anyway, he, was, he was at Wheaton. Yeah. Now New he's Testament at Westminster. Biblical Theology by G.K. Beale is also a good biblical theology. But I would start with one of the short systematics. That's a great question. Yeah, I, thematic biblical theology is, is really good. And, and those, again, are like systematic theology. You kind of have to pick and narrow down a little mm-hmm. bit uh, what you want to read about. Um, but yeah, those are great suggestions. I, I, I tend to think that books we don't even think of necessarily as theology books, like Knowing God, for example, right. is a great place to start if you want to learn more theology. Right. Uh, because there is a lot of theology in that book. I think if you want to learn 
kind of a, a theology framework for interpreting scripture, mm-hmm. Read Desiring God by John Piper. Yeah. It's not a theology book per se, but it's written like a biblical theology. Right. It gives you a nice framework for interpreting the scriptures. So I, I, there's too many things to pick. So ask your favorite person individually mm-hmm. and see what they say. Right. Uh, last question, just to throw this in here while we're talking about it. What what are some things that you're reading lately that you would recommend? Well, let's see. I've got several folks reading uh, a couple books with me. One is called Crazy Busy by Kevin DeYoung, D-E-Y-O-U-N-G, Kevin DeYoung, Crazy Busy. It is a great, a few years ago, I went on a kick and read a bunch of books about time management. And so I read a bunch of secular books that are basically how to do more with your time, kind of life hacks. And then I read on the spiritual side, kind of how to make your faith stronger so that you don't do as much. And I thought he walked the middle of the road really well. Obviously, DeYoung's a pastor. He's going to come at this from a spiritual point of view, but he basically told me how to be happy doing the things I was doing. And I think that's a better approach. So crazy busy, reading Disciplines of a Godly Man, by Kent Hughes, have, have a study of chapter a week with uh, with a gentleman on that. That's really great. And then just for uh, fun, and I don't know if I recommend this, but if you like World War II, Ian Kershaw has written a book called Fateful Choices, and he looks at ten big choices in 1940 and 1941. Everything from the uh, Emperor of Japan to Stalin to Hitler, and just how did they make these decisions? And it's not so much about the Second World War as it is, how do you make these history-altering decisions? So those are three that I'm reading right now. How about Mm -hmm. you? (laughs) One book I just picked up that I'm not done with yet is called Destined for War. And it is by Graham Allison. Hmm. He's a Harvard guy, former head of the Kennedy School. And the book is called How to Avoid the Thucydides Trap Between America and... And China. This is important. The, yeah, I'm, I'm reading everything I can right now on the U.S.-China relationship because I think this is just one of the most important things in the next generation of the world is how the United States and China navigate their relationships. So I read Stealth War by um, Robert Spaulding. That was really mm-hmm. interesting. It, he was a former advisor in the Trump administration working on China he has some really eye-opening stuff about what's going on there. Um, Rick, uh, uh, Rubio's Made in China 2025 initiative analysis for the small business and his, uh, foreign affairs committees uh-huh. uh, is phenomenal. I mean, it's kind of technical political reading, but it it talks about what China is doing with their One Belt, One Road right. and Made in China initiatives that is going to affect the United States for the foreseeable future. But this book, Destined for War, takes a, a, a historical approach. So you look at the Peloponnesian War, Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian War, mm-hmm. and talk about how when there's a rising power, this is the Thucydides trap, when there's a rising power that begins to scare the dominant power, war is typically coming. Mm-hmm. And they go through and look at the last 16 times this has happened, um, including World War One as the premier example. Right. 12 times there's been a war. So the last example of this not happening is the Cold War. Russia's a rising power, scares the United States. We're the dominant power. Now we're being challenged. What should we do? Almost war, but not war. Cold right. war, but not hot war. So I would I would argue we're already in a Cold War with China. Mm-hmm. But this book is really good. Um, a lot of great analysis on that. So that, that's one I've been reading. Um, I've been reading... A great history book called The Square in the Tower by Neil Ferguson. And I love all of Neil Ferguson's stuff. He's written a lot of great books. Neil spelled N-I-A-L-L. Okay. That's okay. Just because he can't spell his name correctly. I'm sure the book is good. Great historian, though. But he's got a book called Empire about the rise and fall of the British Empire. A book called Colossus on the American Empire, if you will. This one is a history of the world told through the lens of networks and hierarchies. So how have networks fashioned the world? And so you start with the Middle Ages, you start with, you know, the Knights Templar, and you start yeah, with the banking the houses, Illuminati. In the yeah. yeah. He right. he's the official 
biographer of the Rothschilds. Okay. So he is a two-volume on the Rothschilds. He's also the official biographer of Henry Kissinger. So he maps Kissinger's network of influence I in foreign his policy. First volume on Kissinger's life. So anyway, great great historian. This, the book is really interesting. He ends talking about Silicon Valley, social uh-huh. media, how these things are shaping the world. Um, I've been reading some interesting, different stuff. So when I had COVID, I couldn't really read the same stuff I usually do because my brain was so foggy. Mm-hmm. And so I branched out a little bit. It's a lot of comic books? Or? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I, I was reading a lot of uh, the Longmire books. Oh, yeah. I'm not a fiction. I'm not a big fiction guy, but I do love Craig Johnson's Longmire books. Uh, the show is pretty good, but the books are better. And so I read several of those. They're just great little mystery. Mm-hmm. Longmire's a great... He's, a, he's the sheriff of Absaroka County, Wyoming. Very entertaining books. Um, so th- those were great. I read Michelle de Montaigne's essays again, which is a real classic um, from the 16th century, kind of invented the essay. Really, really interesting. So I got a little variety yeah. uh, recently, but that, those would be the ones I would recommend. You know, one thing that would be useful to me is uh, when I do have time to read fiction, I have to kind of wade through a lot of things. It would be great if some of our listeners would send you some of their fiction favorites because I'm kind of looking for some fiction for some just some enjoyment reading. Send us your fiction picks, but don't don't uh, don't hold your breath. We're neither one of us good fiction readers, but we can commit to reading a little bit more fiction. Agreed. Guys, thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast and thanks for sending in questions. If you listen to this and you're like, I had a question, go ahead and send it in. We'll do this again in a month or two and uh, we love answering questions and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.